Episode 42 with chef and activist Zoe Ajonia. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's conversation is with chef and activist Zoe Ajonia. Zoe is the founder and creative brainchild behind Zoe's Ghana Kitchen and author of one of New York Times' best cookbooks of 2021. Exploring identity, belonging, and culture, Zoe's career is one of pivots and pirouettes that ultimately land her at home with herself and her love of Ghanaian food, family, and justice. Born in Essex, London to Irish and Ghanaian immigrants in a convent for unwed mothers, Zoe spent the earliest months of her life as a fufu-fed Fante baby back with her grandmother in Ghana. However, her early years would be shaped by the intense sting of otherness as a mixed-race child brushing up against racist gangs in Woolwich, London. Zoe's search for identity developed in college and adulthood as she settled into her sexuality, lost her passion for law school, yet still retained a passion for justice. Following her heart, Zoe cradled her cravings for creative writing and began to explore her heritage through her father's Ghanaian roots by way of food, eventually launching Zoe's Ghana Kitchen in 2010 from her front door with a groundnut stew. Zoe's career now extends across a growing consumer brand of Ghanaian spice blends, the aforementioned cookbook, and she was recently named Director of Programs, Women's Leadership, for the James Beard Foundation. In today's episode, we explore themes of identity, justice, ancestry, family, and, well, of course, food. Zoe's story will inspire anyone whose path feels non-linear or circuitous. Remember, you are right where you're supposed to be, always in all the ways. As Zoe reminds us, those whispers of the universe are always speaking to us. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And if you don't want to miss an episode, make sure you hit that subscribe button. This and more content is over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the lovely Zoe Ajonia. I'm a person who throughout my entire life, even as a kid, like the first things I was watching on TV was the news and current affairs, because that's what my dad watched. I've always had, or like to think I've had a finger on the pulse of culture and the pulse of politics and the pulse of like everything that's going on in the world and the global economy. But the last couple of years, it's like, it, it's almost like when once the veil is really lifted, like once mm. you really understand, mm-hmm. right? The dynamic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right the white supremacist lens on absolutely everything and it's the backbone of capitalism it's the backbone of media and public it's the backbone of all why then and i whilst i also appreciate it's important not to be in an echo chamber and like stuff 
there's just it's senseless trying to get any sense out of something that was created um without us in mind without our potential without as you said our imagination our creativity we are so far removed from anything that these paradigms support all it does is bring grief to listen to because there's so there's so much that needs fixing right you could spend yourself we could spend our days just feel, just with that, just sitting in grief constantly, listening to this um, diatribe, this bullshit, right, that is espoused around us constantly. So I've made a very concerted decision in the last couple of years that I just don't, I just don't, I don't deal with right-wing anything. I don't even watch mainstream media and news anymore. It's like, I focus on things where I can make a difference now. I'm very much focused on action and less talking, more doing and controlling what's within my sphere of influence to change and hoping that it contributes in some small way to the wider thing that's out there. But if we just all, you know, we would just be in grief all day long and more grief than we're already in, you know? And I don't have time for that level of grief, but. You know, I have my own personal griefs, my family griefs, my ancestral griefs I need to process and deal with, right? Um, so I don't really want to deal with, like, whatever grief the white space wants to, to lay on top of all of that, you know? And it's like, I'm about the other side. It's like, let's celebrate and uplift our voices. Let's celebrate and uplift our imagination, our creativity, our genius. Um, and let's focus on that, you know? Well, Zoe, I think we've already started the podcast. <laughs> I mean, that was... What did you say? I said, fuck the white lens. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's you know, it's interesting because I think there's so much... There's so much that is washing over us at any given moment that the only thing we can do is look to what we can affect you know immediately around us and to be honest like that's all life has ever been right that like you know that technology and 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 the um dissemination and the decentralization sort of kind of of media and information only serves to distract you from that very fact that you actually do have uh, power and agency to directly affect your immediate surroundings and what what news does like what it is meant to do is to make everyone else's problem your problem right um to make everyone else's situation your situation backed by capital right backed by uh the power um and the value of your attention um it 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 allows for rhetoric and words to falsely and illusory illusorily yeah totally making that word up um create divides right because if you took three steps back if you took one step back you would realize that you know the insurrection that happened you know a year ago at the capitol started with occupy wall street 
right? And that these is this is actually all the same movement. Yeah. This is actually all the same movement that's been kind of sort of divided between different groups saying the same thing, which is this shit is not working. And it's only identity politics, right? Or these false identities of, you know, gender, race, or whatever that makes it seem like they're different. But what people are saying is like, this is not working. And it started with Occupy Wall Street without a real mission. All they were saying was, we don't know what's up, this, but we just know this shit is fucked, right? <laughs> um, and so it was, and, and it just took, what, 10 years for it to reach the steps of the Capitol, but it's actually the same. Um, so that's a really great place to start. Zoe, welcome. <laughs> and here you're very soothing dulcet tone so grateful uh, conversation again yeah this is um this was like a um what do they call that on saturday night live a cold open where you just start with the show like there's no like <laughs> formal intro <laughs> um but kind of circling back to the beginning um who would you like to dedicate this conversation to you today? Ooh. Well, you know, I mentioned them earlier, and I think I said this before as well, but this is going to be another ancestral lens. Um, I think I chose my grandmother the last time, but I'm open to widening that up to all my ancestors, actually, on both my lineages, because um, this is a new space for me. The, the concept of connecting with ancestry in a more spiritual way. Um, and there is a new moon today, there's a new energy. And for the last 24, 48 hours, my, I feel like my ancestors have been trying to send me messages about what's next for me. So yeah, that's who I'm gonna dedicate this one to, I think. The ancestors. My ancestors, yeah. My glorious lineage, both African and Irish, um, who have like, who made it possible for me to be here today, right? Um, the struggles that they've overcome inform the struggles that I have continued on their behalf and inform the struggles that uh, feed my purpose and my passion. And I'm in process of resolving some of that you know, um, and I'm definitely feeling like this amazing energy about real positive, and, and I know it's like this new moon behind me and we talked about the retrograde being over and Venus is now direct. So obviously I'm in a great mood, <laughs> but I just know that this year is gonna be very rewarding in ways probably I hadn't even anticipated were possible for me. And there's been a lot of work that's led to that, you know, in the last few years. And um, that's been, as I said, it's informed by everything that's gone before me. So including my ancestors and the work and what they, um, what they've brought to this, to this earth through their, their struggle and their pain and their sweat and their hard work and their creativity and their thinking. And I'm just leaning on that right now in this moment of me springboarding into the next evolution of what's, what's coming for me. So my ancestors. Mm, I love that, that amassing, right? That amassing and, and drawing 
um, of, of energy, you know, beyond time, because who's to say that it wasn't you who was calling your mother down whatever paths of desire that she followed, right? And calling your father down whatever paths of desire that he wanted, right? Decisions that he maybe fought, beat himself up over, and then finally decided to take that trip where he met your mother. And all of that was really just you. Speaking about ancestry, um, you have a really interesting one. So you were in Ghana. Uh, when? I mean, I've been to, do you mean where I was raised? Yeah. I mean, you started, you started in, did you start in Ghana and then come to London when you were young? Did I, am I mixing that story up? No, you're not. You're close. Um, I was born in a convent for unmarried mothers in Essex, which is adjacent to London in the UK. So both my parents were super young when they had me, right? So, and, you know, they were both very young immigrants. Anyway, the circumstances of the time, and I was born in a convent for unmarried mothers. And then um, not very much longer after that, so I think I was about eight months old, I was sent to Ghana, raised up like a fat foofy baby, basically. Um, it's a really big deal in Ghanaian culture, especially in Fanti culture, the firstborn female. So it was a big deal that I had arrived and so I was sent back to get all the blessings from my grandmother and the family. And I was there for about six months, seven months, something like that. So I started learning to speak and talk and walk in Ghana, but then I came back to the UK. So I was predominantly raised in Southeast London. Um, and I spent a lot of time in my childhood in Ireland because of the proximity uh, between Ireland and the UK. And I had this big, gaping hole honestly for most of my childhood as to what was what was my relationship to Ghana and that's pretty much how my inter uh, action with food started it was using food as this lens to discover my culture my roots my ancestry um, and have an attachment to those things that, that would otherwise wouldn't wasn't available to me because I didn't have Ghanaian uh, family in London in the UK my dad was kind of for various reasons in and out of my childhood so but when he was there the focal point or at least the focal point of my memory right because it was a long time ago mm. um it was very much grounded and rooted in the food from ghana so me having a relationship with that food was one a way to connect with my dad in initially because he's very he still remains very laconic and quite hard to reach on a conversational basis. Um, and so I thought this food might be a way for us to like connect and have a closer relationship. But also when I watched him preparing that food and I'm talking about things like kenke, which is fermented maize dough and smoked tilapias, chito, hot pepper sauce, very, very uh, different uh, textures, flavors and smells uh, than obviously as usual in an English, especially in like a council estate home in on a white, very much a white council estate as well, you know? So it was very much egg and chips people, nothing wrong with egg and chips, just saying. <laughs> but, you know, so this food was different is what I'm saying. It was very different to what my mum was making. It was very different to what my neighbors were eating. And I was fascinated and enraptured by it. And I saw that 
my dad's preparation and cooking of that was the vehicle taking him home like every single time and so as soon as I realized that I was like right this is where I need to be is like with that food so then it became almost a communion you know um obviously I didn't have that lexicon for any of this when I was a kid this has all been like filtered through experience and looking back and observing and understanding what the journey has been but um yeah that's that's how it all started really was there it's interesting. Uh, yeah. And uh, apologies. I knew you started like the first couple of months of your life in Ghana. I had no idea that you actually were born in this is this convent for for unwed mothers and then sent home because of this love for the divine feminine back in Africa, which is really interesting to, you know, start your life in this place of kind of reverence for femininity and then be sort of kind of retro retrofitted back into this patriarchal culture of London, you know, and how did London then shape your identity? Ooh, I mean, I am London. You can hear it, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, growing up in London, it's an amazing city, obviously. And, I don't really use tropes like melting pot, which are problematic, but you do have lots of different cultures uh, brushing up against each other and so on in the wider context of London. Um, and even in Woolwich, which is a really specific part of Southeast London, um, it, like in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, Woolwich was kind of like one of those forgotten inner city places. So it didn't have a lot of investment. It was quite poor. There were some immigrants like in pocketed communities, but the vast, like the strongest memory I have growing up in Woolwich was the, the heavy, heavy presence of BNP and National Front. So BNP means the British National Party. Like racism in Britain was so pervasive and on the streets, right? So I would leave my walk down the hill, ha ha hill, going into like the Woolwich market and there would be like gangs of skinheads and you know, it was it was a daily threat, right? Racism from that contingent was a daily threat all the way through my childhood and going to school. So that's like one of the strongest memories I have. And also, I guess, a sense of being displaced then, um, you know, like being a mixed race kid in a predominantly white space with a white mother um, who was my main primary caregiver. Uh, it lent itself to a lot of uncomfortableness, right? And it certainly added to my sense of otherness. And mm. So, uh, you know, there's that. But then growing up and that kind of changed, I guess, when I got to college, where I got to integrate more with more Black community, more Asian community, more Indian. So I started to come into myself and my own a bit more then, but I was still grappling for identity, right? Um and so I think I wasn't until like my 18, when I came out, there's this other thing I was doing, dealing with, <laughs> like being like in the closet my whole childhood and teenage years. And so university, I guess, was the point at which I started to really find or really kind of explore who I was outside of all the limitations that had been around me before then. Um, and I did a lot of growth at uni and then yeah, I mean, you know, London is a magical place, but it can also be very repressive. I mean, it's the same as uh, New York or any other major metropolis, right? The, the rich are having a great time. People with money have an amazing time and everybody else is just struggling to survive. Um, and that's kind of like 
I don't scarred my childhood. I wouldn't say scarred, but there's there's a strong emphasis on like, I, you know, and this is why I'm awake to things like social justice and criminal justice and food sovereignty and food justice because I grew up surrounded by a lot of these endemic issues, you know, and obviously race and gender and all of the, the patriarchy, all of these things. Uh, were evident in my life, let alone in my uh, periphery. So in terms of how London shaped me, there's that, you know, that informs my identity. I was born to two immigrants in the inner city in London um, who had a hard time, not just racially, but in terms of economic access and uh, legal representation, like all of the things that we know systemically affect our communities in a negative way. I was raised in a, amongst feeling all of those problems, like they all touched me. And so that has obviously influenced my politics, my point of view, who I care to support, how I care to support people, um, and the veracity with which I can do that. But obviously there's been a process in the, there's a secondary and a third and a fourth evolution of self, right? And it continues to happen. And the older I get, the more confident I am in my femininity, the more confident I am in my voice, the more confident I am in my authority, uh, and the, the very much more me I am. And the more me I am is then this. <laughs> <laughs> very long answer. I'm sorry. I'm such a what are you talking about? We love the the you that you are. Um, you know, you know. I love I and I love this idea of 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 kind of this um, this constant becoming these stages. You know, of evolution, um, which makes me think about you know. You mentioned uni, right? Like you began as a writer, right? Like you. My first degree was law. Um, my second degree was a writing. My master's. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, I mean, I know that there was a writing practice, but law, law. Yeah, I mean, look, this is what I mean, right? So I'm like six, seven years old, watching LA Law, watching Ali McBeal on the TV, and I'm like, yeah, these people are kicking butt. I need to do that, uh. right? I need to change the world. So I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a barrister, and you know, but I also wanted to be a spy and I also wanted to be like uh, a detective and like I, I always wanted to be things that where justice was like at the center uh, 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 uh. and then um you know I grew up <laughs> and uh yeah in my heart I wanted to be a writer um I wanted to do English lit at university but my dad had different plans and you know that's not uncommon for a lot of people who are born to African parents because of their journey and what they hope for you because of what they could get themselves right so and just also having the awareness and the lens of what society is like for a black woman and like you need to have certain qualifications to survive and I don't think you dreaming about being a writer is one of them you know mm. um, so that my creative bent, if you like, was had a hard shutdown. And, you know, I did what my dad wanted because of the, again, because that's what we do sometimes, right? Is we bend ourselves to accommodate the work our ancestors have done. That's how we started the top of this conversation. Uh, uh -huh. um, so I did law and I, I actually ended up loving that course. I had such, a, again, it was hugely like, 
um, ex expansive of my mind and my um, heart and spirit in lots of different ways, in very different ways to how I would use those words now. But at the time, it was a huge growth um, journey that propelled me in another direction. I met amazing people that learned so much. Um, but I didn't come back to writing until nearly 12 years later then. Yeah. I mean, I didn't pursue law. I did. I was a paralegal for a bit. Here's the other thing. Once, I mean, I did my law course, right? And I, within like, I don't know, six weeks of the first term, I was like, this is bullshit. I am uh, never going to get to be the black woman up there with a white wig and a gavel telling them how it's going to be. I just knew that wasn't going to be available to me um, very, very quickly. And I kind of lost a bit of my passion for it I really wanted mm. to make a big difference quickly you know and I knew that law wasn't going to be the way for that um, but I completed the degree I, pra I didn't practice like a lawyer but I did some law jobs and I was like no nah, this isn't for me um, and I went off to Brighton and I literally then did every available job you can imagine <laughs> for 10 years like from band manager to I was doing freelance journalism. Um, I got a journalism qualification actually in Brighton. I was, I did so many random jobs. I used to plant trees on the sides of highways at like four in the morning in the pissing rain and snow. Um, I worked at the Brighton Pier as a receptionist for these like Newcastle mafia gangsters who were very racist and very misogynist. So I didn't last there very long. Um, I was really trying to, I spent 10 years, I guess, trying to find out what I wanted to do. Um, and it always kind of, ended up being event-based stuff. So I started an event company. Um, I was putting on like acoustic music nights. I was doing like toned down versions of other, like making a hip hop artist do an acoustic set and things like that. I was very into all of that. Uh, and then I started managing a band, um, very loose air quotes around that, managing a band. I was a glorified roadie, but I loved it. Um, and yeah, that's when I kind of, stepped into I met some people that allowed me to step back into my creative life when I was still needing permission mm. um, and that really helped me and um I started to find the track but I left Brighton when I was turning 30 because obviously I was having my I'd had my Saturn's return and I was like what the hell am I doing here um I need to figure out what I want to do with my life so I went back to London and I ended up working for a tech company as a PR manager, peer-to-peer -peer streaming service before YouTube. So we were vying against YouTube, actually. YouTube came out of the gate hot, blew it up. So that was the end of that. Um, but that set in, that gave me another set of skills, you know, um, in an emerging market. And then I went off and started my own video production company with some art friends of mine. And we made, um, we did like fashion idents and like fashion, like cool video, cool fashion film and music videos with like a fine art eye because they were all fine art video artists. Did that for a while. And then I kind of got frustrated with all the ego management that was going on. <laughs> so mm, I, stopped, mm. stopped that. Um, I wanted to keep friends rather than the business, I think. And then um, when I got another weird job where I, I was a TV executive, essentially. And I traveled around the world, get this, traveled around the world um, filming air sports so from the aero gp in dubai in the desert to like paragliding hang gliding any sport that happened in the air i was there with a crew filming it that was a cool job and um 
basically, I wanted to go traveling around the States and I said to my boss, look, I'm, this is what I'm doing. So if you want me to keep working, it has to be remotely. So then I just took an editorial job freelance with them and did that while I traveled the States. And when I came back from the States, that's when I started not long after Zoe's Garden Kitchen with that first um, moment where it's outside my front door, a big pot of peanut stew, groundnut soup. And, um, and that, that, that moment, I guess, is the moment that brings me here talking to you right now. You know, you, you, you said something quickly in, <laughs> you said something quickly when I still needed permission, right? What what was that process of giving yourself permission to begin this 48th chapter <laughs> to present stew, a simple peanut stew on your stoop in London? Do you know what? If I had a really neat answer for that, I'd be a millionaire right now, right? Because that's what everybody's trying to understand like what are the points in your journey that you need to pay attention to like where do, where do you where where should you be listening for the universe's whisper right mm. um i don't know that i had that much volition over any of this because the universe has always provided for me in ways when i didn't know that that's what it was doing right so it sends the whisper through <clears throat> an acquaint like somebody you meet and there's like a conversation and an idea or there's a word and then suddenly the word keeps popping up and it takes you on this path or you know you think you want to go this way and the universe is like hell no you're not going to do that job today sis you're going to go around the corner da -da -da -da, bump into this person over here and that's who you need to talk to about where you're going next time. do you know what I mean so it's like it's not really about me having any volition. Of course it requires, and this has definitely been the slowest opening for me, is really, really deeply being aware that this exists, right? That there is something beyond me that is informing and directing my destiny. Mm. It's been a quick case, I guess, over, over the years, just getting better and better at listening to the whispers, paying attention to synchronicity, the synchronicities, uh, the, the coincidences that aren't coincidences um, at the same time as knowing, right, uh, in a general way, what I want to do, where I want to go, and what how my heart feels about it. So like bringing my head and my heart together in that kind of, uh, to solidify the intention. And the more I've, like, so the better I've got at that tuning heart and mind heart and mind heart and mind the universe provides 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 it just gives me the things and that's what i was saying like at the start of this year like i've dug very very deeply into that work and i call it work because it is for some of us right we don't necessarily all have we weren't all necessarily given the tools from a, a young age to know how to handle certain situations or to have that authority within ourselves to feel like we're enough, to feel like we're uh, sovereign. Mm. And it's uh, so many tools, yeah, so many things have shaped me being able to come to, to come in alignment with my sovereignty. And it's a practice of self-development, 
it's a practice of personal growth, it's a practice of meditation, it's a practice of staying, like keeping still, making time to be still. Um, it's a lot of things. There isn't one thing, really. It's it's interesting to see that this kind of this this kind of desire for justice that was birthed out of you know growing up uh, in a situation that was seemingly maybe from the outside not just like like this path that seemingly meanders maybe from the outside someone would say meanders but actually was fortifying you with all of like the skills and experience to land right where you ultimately energetically want it to be right i know it's incredible and like you know if one part of that journey had been different i probably wouldn't be sitting here right now you know like if one little stone had tripped me up on the way like um i probably wouldn't be sitting here right now and that's like a huge thing to unto for people to realize is you know, and I tried to do this a bit on my own podcast, Cooking Up Consciousness. This is what I was alluding to. It was this idea that the non-linearity of our lives <clears throat> and whatever is happening in the present moment, what, and however you feel about it, it's there for a purpose, you know? And wow. it's, it's there to teach you a lesson or to guide you in a direction. And it's really just up to us to be paying attention to as much as we can we need to find the time collectively right collective consciousness we all mm. need to find the time to be present for those moments if we want to really fulfill our destiny and you you mentioned um in previous texts and and, and interviews that you had like a moment yourself right in like 2019 that was like a wake-up call like a wake-up call to this stillness and you know to a life of sobriety like what what was that moment i had so pre-pandemic <laughs> i had a very uh, busy uh well i mean i still have the food brand so it's got in a kitchen but its main operating space was catering street food festivals supper clubs um and like roving right and it meant that as the executive chef the head chef of my business I was I was in a lot of places running up and down the country running across Europe you know going back and forth to the states cooking a lot um, and I was blessed for that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that however uh, you know and we see this now right with the great resignation we see how everybody's reevaluating, especially in hospitality, what that what what work life balance looks like. And that happened to me hard in September 2019, because I ended up in hospital. I was I had just gotten off like a season, a summer season of festivals for me looked like um, you literally go every week to another location in the in the countryside in the UK, and you're serving anywhere between 5000 to 10,000 meals in a weekend. Those are like 18 day, 18 hour days, sometimes having to then after that shift, go and get stock, restock, stay up all night prepping to do it all again the next day. And those environments are fueled, obviously, I mean, not maybe not obviously to some, but it's inherent that there's a lot of drugs and alcohol in those environments to keep people going through uh, the work. It's just a very, very unhealthy, almost toxic <laughs> Uh, industry in that respect because it encourages all of that as well so anyway to cut a very long story short I had this very long arduous season 
and I ended up in hospital coming after coming back from the last festival with suspected meningitis and um I mean I took it quite lightly because I don't know why but part my body just knows when I'm gonna die and when I'm not and I I knew I wasn't gonna die but everybody else thought I was right so I was in A&E they were doing spinal taps they were doing uh x-rays they're doing all kinds of mris they couldn't understand what was wrong with me and i was in intensive care for five days so i had this time right where they didn't know what was wrong with me anything could it could have been anything and i was just sat in hospital on the bed on my own like contemplating what had brought me there and contemplating what had happened in the last the previous 10 years and the pre my whole really previous life and it just gave me that opportunity to to do that deep thinking and reevaluate is this what i want for myself like is this where this isn't where you said like this isn't what you started out wanting to do you know like i had got distracted i had got really off my my original plan like some of the success i had with Ghana kitchen had i didn't realize this would happen but it took me away from what my original mission and vision and purpose was because I was doing more and more and more thinking that that's, these are what the steps are required now because I was in this space. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had that time and I took a sabbatical. I closed down a lot of my operations after that. I let some staff go. I wanted to get rid of lots of the, the responsibility I had, you know, in terms of, what I had to pay for and things like that so I cut down my staff I cut down some of my rent uh, responsibilities and came to New York for three months with my wife had a sabbatical we started playing again with food which I hadn't done for a really long time which is like uh, like just focusing on the creative side of cooking you know and I found my, I started to find myself again, as it were. And then shortly after that, I came back to the UK. I was still drinking at this time, but I had, I had cut it down quite a lot already. But then I came back to the UK and, um, but I was also cognizant that I had, I did know, I was aware I had this problem, right? I hadn't fully confronted it. Like it was the part, it was like the, the, the elephant in the room constantly that I wasn't addressing like full on. Um, and so I was aware that it was there, but I was still in that place of like managing it, right? It's being like, oh, I won't drink that, I'll drink this. And maybe I'll just have two of these instead of four of these and like finding ways to control it. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> and then I kind of, you know, all my plans went out the window. My business was collapsing and I was on this precipice basically. And it was either like, you're either gonna fall this way or you're gonna go this way and rise and thrive or you're going to go this way and fall and just burn and it was a conscious decision like and i was like okay i'm not gonna this isn't how my story ends you know mm. and again some angels synchronistically uh just happened to come into into my life or well, they were already in my life actually but they sang instead of whispering and I made the choice to go into recovery and I am so grateful for that. Like my life has changed 180 degrees, or in fact, 360 degrees since making that decision because the process of recovery forced me to get back in tune with discovering who, who was the person in here before all of that, before 
the world and you know my parents and everybody I'd come into contact with throughout my whole life before all of those impressions were left on me who was the person underneath all of that um and you know yourself that is still an ongoing continuous journey but it set that in motion um and that's why it's been the greatest gift for me because it has impacted how I show up in the world it's impacted how I'm able to relate it's impacted um how I live and how I spend my you know who I spend my time with how I spend my time um what I'm listening to what I'm what I'm learning about and what I'm teaching like it's it's all different now you know mm, mm. <laughs> um and that's the gift that I've had through recovery I mean it's all different but it is all the same right the same mission is there but my approach probably is different and how I balance everything out is certainly changed considerably and my boundaries you know and it's all it's, it's it's almost like I've had a personality I'm the same person but with just a much better personality <laughs> oh I, I love this personality you know and I think it's also interesting you know the ways in which food has come in um in a way of 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 of, of serving this transition, right? Like in a way it was what took you to the brink, but then also knowing, you know, and you've, you've mentioned before that, you know, Ghanaian food specifically, like, you know, has both, you know, um, uh, a cooking and a medicinal purpose, right? So, so there is, uh, there is medicine, there is root work, there is, um, an energy even in this process of, I think, you know, what you're describing is a one, a confronting and a recognizing of a shadow, right? The shadow self. Um, and then the transmutation or the integration of that self that then powers the light, right? And when we think about, you know, even the Institute of Black Imagination, um, you know, one reading of it is, you know, you could look at it through this kind of uh, surface level of, of race, right, as black people, which is one reading of it. But then there's a deeper, deeper reading, which is about the interstitiality of blackness, right, that the light is couched in. It is actually what holds it. It's the only way you can actually even see it. Um, and so what is that? What is that energy? How do we move? How do we integrate that? And understanding that it is the blackness, it is that darkness, it is that that interstitial space that is actually powering the light. Um. <laughs> There's like, this has been ringing in my ears for a bit. And sometimes you don't know whether it's like something you heard or something you thought or something you dreamt. But this idea of like, because I was thinking about how I used to feel. I was trying to find the language to describe how I used to feel as a black woman in white spaces in food in the UK. Like, and by that, I mean, I you know, awards things or various panels or whatever. And it was like being, um, in my head, I described it like the black person in the room is always the brightest light, whether we want to be or not, right? It's, it's that thing. Um, which is an interesting, it's just an interesting idea, I think, because, you know, black is supposed to be 
the opposite of light, right? But this is what we radiate. <laughs> you know, where where I feel like where we where we are, where we move, when we do, there is just this bright opening up that happens, this light um, that people are either, you know, gravitate towards or they depending on their racial proclivity, so how would you say that word? Um, but it's inescapable. Like where we are, we, we bring the light, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I thought that was very interesting that you used that particular language just now. That's <laughs> something I've been ruminating on. Why food? <laughs> no, <laughs> really great question. Why food? Um, why not? But no, I mean, for me, look, food has always been this really instructive tool. I mean, beyond the obvious things, it is sustenance, it is um, nourishment, of course. But for me in my life, ever since actually, food has just been this amazing, amazing tool to connect me with myself, with my culture, with my ancestors, with my family, with my identity. Um, and it, and through that, it's been this amazing tool and resource to share the knowledge that I have about, in my case, West African food and ingredients, specifically Ghanaian food and ingredients. And, you know, I remember being in a, like, run, suppose running out of money <laughs> and being in a bar and being like, God, you know what I could do? I could just do what I do in London and just do some supper pubs. And I suppose there was this moment where I, I, I found, I'm trying to find the exact right words. So give me a moment. I found my kind of self, um, the power of my self volition or the power of, um, you know, my self-propulsion for me to be able to create whatever world I wanted to be. And I think that period of time during that course was really pivotal there because I realized that I could go anywhere in the world and do anything I wanted to do, essentially, you know, which is a massive idea. <clears throat> and I was doing it through cooking. So, for example, I was in Berlin, you know, running out of money, supposed to leave, but I wanted to stay. So I was like, how can I stay? I know I'll put on some events I'll put on some supper clubs so, so whenever I was out I went to bars clubs restaurants I'd be like to the people I met I'd be like guys everybody come to my place on this day we're going to cook dinner going to pay this much it's going to be amazing and to have a sold out room of people um trying for the first time a cuisine they'd never heard of right and me being the instrument for that and hosting and entertaining and cooking for and feeding um, that whole summer really was, I suppose, key in me realizing what else was available to me and what my my part in that was. Like, in that I could, I started. It was the very seed of me starting to understand what was possible for me outside of the machinations of capitalism. You know, I, I I'd never gotten on working for anybody else for very long. You know, I mean, I have that entrepreneurial spirit. And the times where I, I had collaborated, it was always about, um, you know, representing somebody else and raising them up and, you know, bringing people together to, for other projects outside of me. So I guess it was the first time where I realized what my power was. I'm not going to say I fully understood it yet. Um, that has been an ongoing process and still is, quite frankly. But I think that's probably the first time where I had a shift about what was available to me and not doing it within the structures. This is the, the most important part for my story, 
was doing it outside of existing structures, like on my own volition, not going to a culinary school because I had this idea to do this thing, right? It's like, I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. It's going to be about my interpretation. It's going to be about my narrative. Um, and that's what I want to celebrate, my relationship with this stuff. So, yeah, I think that was the big shift. I think that doing that MA, coming back to my creative self, having that break and doing it slowly so that I could enjoy that process and so that I could grow during that process. And then having that moment of revelation in the middle of it where this food concept was bringing together lots of different parts of me I hadn't really tapped into before and consequently realizing that you know, I could create my own world right to to be to be in I think that was it I'm having the same thing right now 10 years later it's another return <laughs> <laughs> so in thinking about like this work that you in a way have been called to do like like, do you do you view it as a calling? Because it seems to have found you. Mm. Yeah, it, it definitely is a calling. Like, I, I wouldn't have known that again at the time. I mean, it's wonderful, isn't it? I, I love, I love the new gift I found for like reflexivity. Like, just looking back and seeing all of the little steps that have got me to where, where I am now, and how surprising that is um because I wasn't cognizant because you're not at the time right when you're when you're being pulled to do something you're it's you're being driven or I can't say we I let me talk from my experience I was driven by this unfathomable passion suddenly like I didn't even know that was in me until it until I opened it in a way you know what I mean it's it's really a strange to describe but you know but yeah Oprah said it best right it's just like your passion and your purpose are usually the things that you do all the time but aren't getting paid for right it's just what you love doing and you know cooking for people was something I loved doing I didn't know that I was especially skilled at it or adept or had any magic talent but it's certainly something I loved doing it didn't even occur to me that maybe that could be a career path or something. And even when I, you know, it would stand outside my front door, even after that, you know, it took a couple of years before I was like, oh, wait, this, this actually could be a career. This could be a business. The whole other thing like, before then, it was very much, like I said, I was just doing because it, it was so much fun to do. And I loved bringing people together. And I loved explaining what these ingredients were to some people, or I loved, you know, to the diaspora audience I had in London, you know, to see them be excited about new interpretations of familiar dishes, like that gave me so much pleasure and joy. So it was very much coming all from this place of joy and passion and sharing an idea, right? And hoping that this idea could be a tool to a wider conversation about dispelling stereotypes mm. around West Africa and the continent and dispelling these racist tropes about our food and our food culture and so all these other beautiful things came from the connecting of passion with purpose you know it's it's kind of like a like I could not have dictated that 
it, there's so many serendipitous things that had to just coincide for that to allow me to be able to have that experience um and all of the people who were around me like were pivotal to that for enabling me to encouraging me to, to go down that road and to support me on that road I mean wow actually you know I think about it and I almost want to cry because it's been such a special journey which I haven't always appreciated you know um because then there comes like when you're in it and then when it's a business it becomes a different thing you know <laughs> so it's a whole new world then um but yeah it was definitely something I was called to do because it was definitely something I never ever imagined designing for myself yeah and this conversation for me is so beautiful because I think it just speaks to what it means to um listen to that one weird voice that says do this right you know we all have it we all receive those messages but it's in the it's in the the listening right um and then it also feels um quite beautiful because i think it is it is the the spark of creativity again that we all have within us meaning it could have really been anything you know what I mean? It really could have been anything um, for any one person. And for you, it ended up being cooking and it came out of joy and delight, right? Cooking a, a peanut butter stew um, outside of your stoop um, that flourished and turned into something, you know, quite incredible. And, you know, I think sometimes in the creative industries, people think that we know everything from the outset, right? That, that, that this larger conversation that our passion provides for was something that we thought about at the offset, but or at the outset. But for you, it was really simply, you know, wanting to share, right? Like wanting to share this thing that you loved and couched within it was so much more, right? Like so much about, you know, diasporic conversations and like the codification of like West African dishes and, and social justice and food disparities and like health. Like it was all couched in, you know what I mean? Like a, like an acorn, right? Like, but it was like, I just wanted to make some stew. <laughs> like I just wanted to make stew. But 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 in that, there was a much larger plan, right? And um, for those who may know um, Abraham Hicks or the teaching of Abraham Hicks, um, they say that the universe will surprise and delight you. Um, and so it sounds like there's been a lot of surprises and delights, you know, along this way. Um, kind of double tapping on your cookbook itself um and the process of it coming into being like you know you were you were making so you know you know from an Irish Ghanaian background food you know particularly Ghanaian food was a connection with your father um in this kind of far away distant land um and you began to make uh you know a stew outside of your soup outside of your stoop but at some point like there was a pivot Right. Where it was like, oh, I need to like get serious about this. And I'm not I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine like the ingredients in making a stew and then 
to a full scale cookbook, right? Or even a kitchen or a, you know, some kind of like cuisine. There was some learning that had to take place. Like, what was that process like? I know you, you know, would go back and forth to Ghana and would go to markets, but like, how did you start to kind of codify and, um, and expand this knowledge? Yeah, you know, thank you for the question. It was, it was very challenging actually to begin with because, because yeah, the, the, much of the cuisine of Ghana, and this is still the case despite my book and despite there's a few others out in the world now, you know, there's still so much there that isn't codified, right? Um, and so when you think back to when I started this in 2010, 2011, 2012, in those really, really early years, I was so dependent on the women, the aunties at various local markets um, in, well, let me just name them actually. So Ridley Road Market in um, Dalston, which was my, the closest market to me, two miles up the road, um, Brixton Market, Peckham, going to those places and discovering right because also you know my dad had this to be fairly honest a very limited repertoire right he wasn't mm. also some great culinary <laughs> leader he's just an, an African man cooking food as best he could that reminded him of home with the access to ingredients that he had I mean in Woolwich we were lucky growing up because actually we had quite a good um, West African uh, grocery provision through a large Indian store that was there lots of similar ingredients but also there was um anyway oh it's too much detail it's a bit granular but anyway the, the point was i had to depend on the, the kindness of strangers right um and to teach me about the ingredients so i was learning all the time every time i went there like oh, i'd find a new thing and be like what's that what do you do with it what is da, da, da. and then it was like so getting as much knowledge as i could from those women and then bringing that knowledge home and then playing with what they had told me, but then also being very curious outside of that and being, hmm. I mean, I, I remember thinking at the time, like, I'm not a chef, but, <laughs> you know, just having that. So it was always like this curiosity to be like, but this is a mate, like, let's just pick one hard grain spice, like grains of Salem or something like that. And, you know, the, uh, uh, an auntie saying to me, oh, you crack it and put it in the pot. I'd be like, okay, and that's the instruction. You crack it and you put it in the pot, okay. But then me being home and I'm like, hmm, that smells so amazing. Like, so what else could I do with that? You know, what else could I do with that profile? Where can I integrate that ingredient somewhere else? Because it's fabulous. Or it's like looking at a little garden egg, which is, um, we, we call, gar um, it's a baby white aubergine. And it, because it looks like an egg, it's called a garden egg. So you know, finding that every time I asked a woman what they did with garden eggs, it was always, you put it in the pot, you know, everything was just about, everything goes in a pot, essentially, right, <laughs> and gets boiled and boiled and boiled, and so it just left me with this curiosity to be like, okay, but what else, because I'm, this is an amazing ingredient, so why are you only doing that with it, especially when what you do with it makes it kind of lose all of its flavor and texture, and you know, so I just had this innate curiosity to play with the ingredients at the same time as really wanting to make sure, you know, I was getting it right, you know. Um, and so there was that. And then, then going back to Ghana, um, 
was this huge, huge trip for me. The, the, the trip in 2013 was so big because I hadn't been there since I was a baby. And, you know, I was a grown woman. I was an outgrown woman, which was, you know, in Ghana, even recently. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with all of the um, protesting that's been going on there over the last year. But, you know, Ghana still has very homophobic legislation and practices and it's going through the courts the stuff going on in the courts right now around it actually so that was like a terrifying prospect right to be especially when you're outspoken feminist mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a big afro and you're light-skinned and you're going to um uh, a country that isn't familiar to you but you know you have family there but you don't know how they will receive you right it's mm. it had a, a very personal challenge um but it was beautiful because I got to then, you know, talk to my grandmother and my aunt's actual related aunts um, about food and about food culture. And to, to have then that conversation and that information and that education through their lens, which were all different lenses, incidentally. Um, and then to go off on my own, right, because I'm an adventurer. I'm a curious. I want to go. I want to find. I want to reach. I want to touch. I want to smell. I want to speak to people. I want to experience life. And so I went off on my own and, um, you know, everywhere that I ate food, which was nine times out of 10 in a chop bar, which is so a chop bar is basically like a roadside kiosk or eatery type thing. I don't know if you've been to Bali or Indonesia, but they call them warongs there. But you know, every culture, um, indigenous culture, probably, I should say, has that type of fast, casual, almost street food. And everywhere I went, I would... Well, if I enjoyed the meal, I'd you know, show my head in the kitchen and be like, oh, I beg, please show me how you <laughs> can you show me how you make that? Um, and more than 50 percent of the time they would. You know, a lot of people looked at me like, what does this Bruni want? But <laughs> you know, a lot of other people were like really proud to be able to show me. Yeah, this is my food and I'm excited to show you how to prepare it. So. There's that, right? And then for the longest time, I was just in that bubble. So I wasn't even looking outside of, I wasn't looking to other chefs for guidance or inspiration. Like I didn't have anybody on a pedestal around food. And I think that was to my benefit because I I wasn't hemmed in by any strict rules or there were no rules, you know? Um, So the best thing I could do was go back to Ghana and find out as closely as I could what was traditional because tradition looks different in every house and every area and every region and to honor that but also then to come with it with my own curiosity and with my own intrigue and my own creativity um and you know I'm not going to say fuck shit up but you know play with it and adapt it and see how that went you know and um it went well (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and speaking of adapting, um, there's a line, I want to say it's in your book or an interview, I can't remember. Oh, sorry, you say you say recipes that don't adapt over time risk being lost completely. Right. Um, the reason that I said that and why I still believe that is because, especially for our culture, because we don't have this huge canon right we just don't have a codified library of all the beautiful culinary um magic 
that comes out of West Africa. I mean, it's starting now, right? It's starting. There's so many beautiful new cookbooks that are going to be birthed into the world in the next couple of years. Eric Adjipong, your one day. Uh, I'm sure Binta, Chef Binta must have one in the pipeline by now. Um, I know Kwame's got a cookbook coming out next year. I'm not sure how much his focus will be on them diasporic food but I'm sure it will because his restaurants were involved there anyway all that is to say without hundreds of years and here's important to note as well for the listener is like you know it's Italian and French cuisine have had hundreds and hundreds of years of development right because they were colonizers <laughs> I mean that's not the only reason but they had that luxury right they had the luxury of exploring food as art now, the African continent didn't have that same time. They didn't have that same relationship. They didn't have necessarily that same need, want, or desire, honestly, either. But the problem is they didn't have the facility in the first place because so much of what we were doing was struggling to survive, right? It was fighting off the colonizers. And food was very much through the lens of sustenance. It wasn't how you're going to make a lot of money in the world. or it was how, you know, Cooking for yourself was so that you had the energy to go to work. Right. So you could do the work in the field or whatever the work was that the white man was trying to get you to do. So there is that huge, huge few hundred years, 500 years of, of us not codifying our food in that same way. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to do it in the same way, right? because I'm also um, a big advocate for us making up our own systems and our own codification. And, you know, we can do that work. Um, it was just convenient for me to just jump into a system that already exists right now, 10 years ago. Um, and then, so there's that part. And then there's, um, because then that our, our recipes and our culinary traditions have been passed down orally, like literally from grandmother to daughter, from daughter to daughter, you know, and also without exact measurements, right? So we use cans of this and pinch of that and our chucky team, you know? <laughs> there, there wasn't necessarily um, a strict formulaic guide to how to prepare any of this, which means there's huge variance, you know, which means there's huge capacity for adaptation between households, between tribes and, you can certainly see a beautiful relationship across West Africa, right, with certain dishes and certain ingredients Like we all have a groundnut, we all do a jollof, we all have these touch points of familiarity, right, but we have each adapted those recipes to our own culture, to our own situation, to our own um, environment of what's possible climate-wise to grow and regionally and all of those things. So what's the next step? How do we then keep all of those alive if our grandmothers are passing away and our mums care less about cooking those traditional foods because they've moved into this modern um, way of living, right? Whereas, for example, in Accra, you know, most people, this has been true for like a really long time, for at least since 2013, like the conversation hasn't shifted that much around this. It's like people, when wealth and investment comes to African countries, perhaps, and I'm not saying that this is exclusively true, but there is suddenly this looking to the West, right, for what is valuable, looking to the West for what is desirable. Aspiration has this Western lens around it, which means that there has been this disconnection between Ghanaians in Ghana and their own food, right, when it becomes, when, when the class 
when people are moving up through the classes, perhaps, um, there becomes this disconnection a little bit with in the enjoyment and pleasure of our own food and the valuing our own food and our food culture. Um, I would like to think and hope that that is slightly reverse shifting now because so many chefs are in the space promoting the cuisine and giving it profile like Michael Allegri in Nigeria, for example, um, and Selassie Adeniko for Ghana on a world stage, finally, praise be. Um, so there is this shift happening, but not but and all of those things <laughs> um, then mean that we can't do anything else but adapt the recipes right because any recipe that I give you that's can, pertaining to Ghanaian cuisine or West African cuisine is still only going to be my in, evocation my interpretation through the lens of whoever taught me it or gave it to me unless I'm like completely coming up with something you know like jollof fried chicken which nobody had definitely had ever made before it didn't exist before I started making that or okra salt right so my job now as a cook and as a curious creative in the food space is I'm about the what else and the ands because it's not my job to teach people what is traditionally I'm not your auntie I'm not your grandmother like look at me <laughs> do I look like an auntie or grandmother no like I'm your Ghanaian cousin maybe right who's been around the world and spent time in Ghana and she likes to cook and now she's coming up with this so my space is about adapting it to, to broaden what is Ghanaian cuisine. What else is it beyond what is or isn't already codified, you know? And how can we share in and have an appreciation for and love our ingredients and our cuisine? Um, and I'm not saying to this what is traditional in any respect, because it's always about, um, for me anyway, is trying to be true to that and but always explaining and this is where the cultural appropriation piece comes in is like why have I adapted this and where does it come from originally and like what did it look like before I meddled with it you know that's really important work to do as well um I have to you know put that out there but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't expand the the canon a bit right it shouldn't mean should broaden our own senses because we have to catch up on 300 years of play <laughs> you know we so that work is only just beginning in the last 15 20 years so there's so much to do there there's so much um to be inspired by and to create and to have a discussion about and I'm sure you know this will be the next new conversation because in tandem right I, I'm talking about decolonizing the food industry and some people are really specifically having a separate conversation about decolonizing West African food. And it's like, you know, I, I'm, I have a foot in both of those conversations, absolutely, because there is, a, there is a certain amount of West African food that, because, you know, there is this other thing going on where there's a new generation of young chefs and cooks in Accra who are now really, really super focused on fusion food, which is a bit of me and a bit of that and a bit of Michael and a bit of, you know, and so where does that take us next? You know, what is that landscape going to look like? I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the word fusion, honestly, but you know what I mean? It's like, but they're reimagining the plates and they're reimagining that. So I don't know, it's, it's an exciting time. And I think that a lot of people are interested now to do that work, to keep the food alive and to keep the, um, 
the, the supply and demand of the ingredients, we have to work with them in any way we can, honestly, because that, that's the other part of this for me. It's like, how do we bring the wealth back to the continent of Africa that has for so many hundreds of years simply had the West and the global North coming to steal and pillage and remove the rich resources um, that make our culture? And that, you know, food is this is the next wave. It has been the next wave for the last 10, 15 years. As I said, you know, that we are still being colonized, right? People might not call it that, but we are. And people are taking our ingredients and taking our food and putting it white labels on it and selling it to a white audience um, without our equity, without our involvement and without our um, rewards, honestly. So, I don't know, there's a lot to unpack in everything I just said, but to cut a long story short, part of how we keep the value and create value is in adapting and keeping the, the recipes alive and out there in the world. And um, even if that means just being next to your grandmother, the next time you do your whole December Ghana visit, and being like, let me write this down, tell, you know, let me, can you tell me how you make this, right? That's codifying it. That is beginning to have a codification of, what that looks like in your house and then you can take that recipe back to New York or LA or London or wherever you've gone into Ghana from and then be like okay let me make this and then oh, but what if I add that and what if I take away that and what if I do substitute that is that a good substitution does it uplift the dish or does it um, take away something from the dish or does it become false or does it become more real for who I am where I am now you know so there is that as well like everything's going to be determined by the person adapting the recipe and what their lens is and what their experience is and what they want to say about the food and the culture. Yeah. And there's, there's also something quite like existential about it too, right? Like anything that doesn't adapt is going to eventually be lost right completely right there's something for for the for the human experience um in that as well um and how we engage with culture and or contemporary culture as it washes over us um and as you speak can i just add actually yeah please please add all you want thinking there on the fact that um you know, and also the thing is because like you can have 20 Italian cookbooks that are all about pasta, right? And nobody's going to blink an eye about, oh, there's another Italian pasta book. People are going to be like, oh, Italian pasta, and like run for it, right? <laughs> but we don't have that luxury either, right? So you, you can't, we're not at a point where we could have 20 different Ghanaian women chefs or cooks each having their own version of the same recipes, right? The publishers aren't going to put that out. They're not. The audience isn't ready for that. Even though I know each of us would bring something different to it, have a different relationship, yada, yada, yada. But the publisher's going to be like, well, somebody else just put out a book with all of those recipes. Why are we going to put that out? So there's that part of it as well. That will force us to adapt, right? And that will force us to focus and hone in on who we are and what our particular relationship is with that cuisine and that food is it's almost essential if you want to that let me caveat that by saying if you want to be in that space right and not everybody does understandably um 
but if you do want to be in like a mainstream conversation around this food then you probably you're either going to go one or the other way you're going to go super super traditional all the way back take it all the way back like what happened before the colonials arrived before the portuguese bought birds actually before they bought cayenne before they bought rice what was what did that look like and then the future of food right and you're talking about your michael legbys and da, 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 da. so everybody has to find a place on that spectrum but what is true is we all need to be putting something out on that spectrum and more often than not it's going to be an adaptation of this tradition um than not i think that's my opinion don't at me people <laughs> no i think it's well one you know what I am just so enamored by is not only your 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 breadth of knowledge, your curiosity, um, and 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 your chutzpah, right? Like your 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 uh, elbow grease, right? Your stick to itiveness um, to the task at hand, but you also really approach it understanding the world you're in, right? And I think that so, so many um, missteps we find in this space and many other spaces is people not only going after what they want, but not understanding the environment they're walking into in that pursuit. And in looking, you know, at your cookbook, um, you know, watching videos of you explain, you know, okra salt and and jollof spice, um, you really couch you know, the neophyte and in care, right? Like you really understand like this isn't all codified and it's new to many people. It was new to me at some point and... Still new to me. That's yeah. And I'm going to do my best, right, to to couch you in care so that you can enjoy, you know, making this. Um, and you also, you know, speaking about decolonization, um, you speak about the ways in which it affects... Um, even sourcing these ingredients that you that you speak about, one being red palm oil. Um, could you explain the ways in which you know this this kind of friction exists between right traditional ingredients and like Western um, the Western gaze on these ingredients? Yeah, I mean, this is a topic that used to make me so angry. <laughs> Luckily, again, therapy has been very useful for me <laughs> managing my responses to things. I'm a little bit less shouty now, just a little bit. But, um, you know, when I started early on in my career in the UK, like constantly coming up against this kind of narrative of, oh, we, we can't include a recipe with palm oil because it's, you know, it's politically not OK to have palm oil. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean? And people are failing to do a couple of things here. They're failing to make a distinction between red palm oil and um, the white sap of palm oil that's used in so many products um, from Mars bars to soaps to cleaning detergents to God knows what. Right? There's this tiny little ingredient that comes from an extract of the palm fruit sap, <laughs> but it's not red palm oil, right? But nobody's making that distinction. And secondly, you know, Africa, Africans, West Africans have been farming and producing red palm oil from palm nuts sustainably for thousands of years. 
thousands of years. Um, to lump that community of growers and producers in with this other group who are exclusively huge, large multinational corporations who are planting palm for that little thing, right? So they're deforesting um, swathes and swathes of jungle and forest, which means they're displacing orangutans and other important wildlife there and upsetting the whole ecosystem and the biodiversity of certain land masses. Obviously these land masses are in Africa and they're in Malaysia and they're in Southeast Asia where there are, you know, where they can get away with it <laughs> or they were getting away with it until and people rightly should be angry about that unsustainable practices and displacing um, wildlife and that are now you know, potentially borderline extinct in some places. And we should be upset and angry about that, but we have to have a clear distinction in this conversation about what red palm oil is and how it pertains to West African cooking and its importance and richness there. Um, and that those smallholder co-ops and producers that are producing it in West Africa still need to be supported and still need to be able to sell it. And why on earth does the white gaze think it could come to Africa and tell Africa Africans what's good for them or not? You know, it's like, get just back the fuck off. And also then they're bringing in this other thing of, you know, what the standards are or should be around this production for these people. And it's like they're creating barriers for us to be able to grow and produce and export and sell what we've been doing for thousands of years and now creating labels like you know fair trade you know why fair trade labels exist because big white corporates have been um engaged in child labor slave labor um you know all of the everything bad you can think about when it comes to mass food production it hasn't been smallholder Africans and mediums holding agriculture in Africa and Malaysia that's caused that. It's been the big companies, right, doing that, putting in bad practices. And so the white West gets its like white guilt conscience. And it's like, okay, well, we need a label that's going to tell us who is a good company to buy products from and who is a bad, right? But in order to qualify for that mark, there's a lot of hoops to go through. There's a lot of paperwork to go through. There's a lot of... Um, bureaucracy and of course money that needs to be paid to get that standard and also the vegan standard right so there's these machinations of bureaucracy that have been white standards set up that are now trying to be applied to us and our food because you want some of it and it's like well hang on a minute if you want it <laughs> you should be adhering to our standards right we should have what counts as you know I'm an advocate for Africa coming up with its own fair trade stamp. It's like, are you even a company we want to sell this to? Have you been engaged in, you know, child labor, uh, any slave labor, like paying people below the poverty line wages and the other, the other. So, you know, there's a real imbalance there around the whole conversation. And this also relates to things like single origin spices, which I have right been promoting for the last 12, 13 years, telling everybody how amazing they are, naively thinking that oh, I'm going to help my aunties out on Ridley Road, right? Because I'm going to send them to Ridley Road to get that. Or I'm going to help my people out um, in Accra who are farming these grains of Salem and these grains of paradise, because where else are people going to get them? They're going to have to go through that, right? Really super fucking naive. <laughs> And then being in Accra in like 2018, 
and talking to my chef community there and because I couldn't find so many things in the local markets right and being really puzzled why I couldn't find millet and why I couldn't find grains of paradise and why I couldn't find certain ingredients and my chef community telling me that um that yeah you know crops are being bought out by Unilever crops are being bought out by Monsanto or and they're not just buying out local crops so that they can exclusively sell it they're also now buying the land so they can exclusively grow it right at a price which will outprice the local producers of it so there's all you know there's all kind of fuckeries going on um and that has made me drive forward this conversation about decolonizing and you know while it's welcome that there's interest from the white west in these ingredients of course because that should be a new um revenue model right it should be a new revenue stream for us but it's not because as usual they want to come and take away from us the opportunity to monetize that for ourselves so all of this is is going on and ongoing and that's why we have or i have you know part of my sorry to use it pivot in the pandemic was you know i lost all my like my catering and all of that got destroyed essentially so you know, part of my pivot was then to focus on that and to focus on selling single origin West African ingredients with short supply chain so that I could educate people about how important it is to buy black, how important it is to buy African, um, and also the amazing health benefits of those ingredients. Um, and to try to actually now you know, be instrumental in a really small way, really small way, but we've all got to do what we can where we are, right? but have some effect on that ecosystem in terms of at least I know now for sure that my woman back in Accra, she's getting paid properly for that ingredient and the price I'm selling it for justifies that. You know, it justifies the fact that there's no middlemen here. There's no agents. There's no yada yada skimming off the top and taking profits. It's like the bare minimum packaging for the maximum ingredient for the best price for the producer. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> but yeah, Red Palmer has been a, an ongoing, and anyone who's interested should read a really great article about that by you one day, Kamalfe. Um, sorry, and I think I've probably written about it before myself. Yeah, we'll put a link of that in the sh- in, in in the show notes. Um, I I also want to quickly just like acknowledge you, Zoe, for you know. I think initially just listening to your own desire, right? And I think sometimes we think it has to be more than that. We think that we have to see the end before we begin. And I think it's just, what's the next thing that I want to do right now? I want to like share this recipe that I love with, with friends in the community and I need to make a little money. So I'm going to set this up, not knowing what was to come and then when that was revealed to you doing that work right to be responsible in it despite your humanity our humanity you know um which is always a constant like getting it out of the way so that we can get to work which you know we will we will get to we will get to um in a in a in a, in a future date um but really 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 thank you for this foundational work because ultimately that's what this is, right? This is foundational work and it is, I know is tiring um, and can be exhausting. Um, 
but I'm looking at the smile on your face and knowing that underneath it is so much joy and excitement and also congratulations on being head of women's women's programs women's programs at the james beard foundation well i'm not head i'm a director okay director i mean you're directing it (laughs) (laughs) oh and i might just give myself a little shout out here please the cookbook zoe's gone in the kitchen has just been on the new york times best one of the best books of 2021 so I don't know how the, the hell it went from being outside my front door in Hackney Wick in 2010 to now having a cookbook on the New York Times, like in the New York Times, is just so insane to me. But that is the beauty of a journey where you just say yes when it feels right, you know? So that's that's it. And also speak and congratulations on that as well. And the book is amazing. I'm I won't I won't talk about my dalliances in 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 the in le cuisine but um <laughs> but also can use some spices so you can have some fun with that oh but before we go where can people connect with you and how can they learn more about what you're up to um fastest place is probably instagram i'm at zoe Ajonia on instagram and there'll be a link to my website there zoeajonia.com or you can visit zoesgarnerkitchen.co.uk both of those platforms there's going to be plenty to see <laughs> amazing amazing zoe thank you so much it was such a pleasure having you um thank you for giving me space on this beautiful beautiful podcast and it's been such a pleasure just to get to know you just a little bit and i'm so glad that i met you in person before we did this yeah enable this lovely energy exchange so look i'm really really grateful for the space thank you for holding it for me and for everybody else and um i look forward to hearing the edit thank you all so much for joining us today We actually had a few audio issues, so thank you for your grace. And shout out to Zoe for coming back to fill in some of those gaps. And what a conversation it was. So many gems. Let us know what spoke to you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. We love reading your comments and thank you so much for all of those lovely reviews over on Apple Podcasts. I'm sorry, what? Did you say you, you haven't left one yet? Oh, well then I think you should head over. Maybe like now. <laughs> I'm kidding. Be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And as always, stay curious and keep dreaming.